have a seat. God bless you. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. And God said, let there be light at some point. Amen? All right. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't have one, that means you need one. So raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you a Bible. Um, matter of fact, again, as I say every week, you can feel free to take that home with you. It's our gift. Uh, one more announcement real quick. Uh, I know Pastor Dan mentioned it, but the, the men's retreat sign-ups are due tonight. So if you plan on going to the men's retreat, we need to know tonight. Uh, Calvary San Jose has called us a bunch of times, and uh, they need a final number. So it's, it's the 25th through the 27th. It's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You don't have to go to all of it. You can go to part of it if you want. The speaker is my pastor, Don McClure, who is my pastor at Calvary Chapel San Jose, who's now down in Southern California. I really want to encourage you guys to go. As we're going to see in tonight's text, that three times a year, all of the Jews were called to go away for a week and spend time alone with God. So they would keep their eyes on God. They wouldn't forget about the Lord. They could be more godly husbands and fathers and men. And I believe that that's something we've lost a little bit of today. And I think it's important that we get away sometimes and go be refreshed and spend some time alone with God. So if it's at all possible, I want to encourage you to talk to Joe Shute, Pastor Joe, who kind of heads up our men's ministry at the back table right back there, right after church. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 16, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Love in Deuteronomy, amen? The Bible rocks, it's all in there for a reason. You know, a lot of people are blown away when they find out, you're going, we're, on, we're, on, we're going through Leviticus on the radio right now, and people love it, and praise God, because it, you know, it's so sad, it's a book that is avoided, much like Deuteronomy is often avoided. Now to catch you guys up, if it's your first time here, or if you just have short-term memory loss from last, last Wednesday, catch you guys up, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Moses is instructing the next generation of the children of Israel as they're about to enter into the land of promise. The previous generation had died in the wilderness because of disobedience. He began the first ten chapters of Deuteronomy reminding them of all the things that the previous generation had been through. He reminds them of how they had fallen short, how they had disobeyed God. They rebelled. They made the golden calf. They rejected God's command. They rebelled against Him. They refused to enter into the land of promise. And then he told them all the consequences of their sin that the next generation might learn from the previous generation's sin. And so he prepared them and said, look, they've disobeyed God and here were the consequences. So chapters 1 through 10, he replays all the sins of Israel. Then from chapter 11 on, he's preparing them as they're about to enter into the land of promise. Now we've talked about this repeatedly. If you guys have been here any length of time, it's review, but that's okay. Egypt is a type of the world. And bondage is a type of sin. And they were all in bondage in the world. And as we're going to see tonight, the Lord delivered them out of bondage. After delivering them out of bondage, they crossed over the Red Sea, a type or a picture of water baptism. Again, a a recognition of being identified with the Lord. He defeated their enemies as they crossed through the Red Sea, but they stepped out in faith as He parted the Red Sea, and they went through. They came to the other side of Mount Sinai. The law was given to them. God spoke to them audibly, and sadly, they had short-term memory. And as soon as He stopped speaking to them, they they were fearful and shaking. They said, Moses, you go up there and you talk to Him from now on because we can't take it. And while Moses was up on the mountain, they began to worship the golden calf. And we know that the ground opened up and swallowed some of them. And he said, all of you who are on God's side, come to me. And there was one tribe where all of them came. And it was the tribe of Levi, the Levites. That's why they became the priestly tribe. Then they wandered through the wilderness. Now, this 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march because they disobeyed God. You know, the shortest distance between two points is walking in the obedience of the Lord. Amen? You want to go there the long way, disobey God, do it your own way, keep trying, and eventually you'll have to do it God's way or you will never get there. Amen? And so they took this 11-day journey, turned it into a 40-year death march because they refused to listen to the Lord, have faith in God. There's giants in the land we can't go in, and that entire generation died. Now we also know that now God's going to lead them into the land of promise. This is all preparation. We've talked about the Jordan being a type or a picture of Holy Spirit baptism. That going into the land of promise is going and being in the center of God's will and and receiving all that God has for you. In some ways it's a type of heaven, but realistically it's more a picture of the Spirit-filled life because there are still enemies in the land of promise. So in preparation for them to go into this land of promise to experience all that God had for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, He still prepares them and says, guys, 
You're going to be entering in, and God has a great plan for you, but it doesn't mean that there will be no more trials. In James 1, it says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Not if, when. Amen? And as Christians, trials come to help us grow in our faith. And without a test, we can have no testimony. And our, our trials often are things that God uses in our life to help us minister to others. So in chapter 11, he told them, if you're obedient when you go into the land, God will bless you. In chapter 12, he told them, there's only one true worship. And when you go into the land, there's going to be idols there. And there's going to be places where they used to worship idols after you defeat the enemy. Don't leave the idols. And don't leave the altars. Don't even leave the place where they used to meet. Tear it all down. Destroy it all. Because God knew the temptation of the children of Israel would be to go right back and worship the idols of this world. And the Lord tells us the same thing. We're not to hold on to things that might tempt us. You know, we're not supposed to see how spiritually mature we are by holding on to things that tempt us. We're supposed to flee from them, amen, and destroy them. In chapter 13, we saw what God thinks about other religions. What did he say? If anybody tells you or even says anything to you about one of these other gods, come check out this other god. Come see what Baal has to say. Nothing, he's a dead block of wood. But let's go see what Baal has to say. And what did God say to do to anybody who would draw them away? Kill them. Pretty serious about what God thinks about other religions. This is not politically correct, is it? You know, we just have to sing kumbaya, put our arms around everybody, have a big tent, get everybody in there. We're all, you know, as long as we're sincere, that's the biggest lie ever. And God is very clear when he says, if they draw you away to false gods, kill them. If it's somebody in your own family, they do it in quiet, bring them out before the elders and stone them to death. Now, I said it last, I want to make sure I say this every week because I don't ever want to get put on trial for murder. You're not supposed to kill the Mormons that come to your door, Amen. You're not supposed to stone people to death, okay? You pray for them. In the Old Testament times, God wanted to keep his people pure. And he still wants to keep us pure, amen? Again, in the world but not of it. Ministering to the world but having no fellowship with it. Then we got to chapter 14, and he told them to live all your life for God. He talked about even in the way they mourn. When you mourn, you don't mourn like the world. Why? Because we grieve but not as those without hope, Amen? For us, death is graduation day. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. When I die, this is a good thing. When the wor- you know, for the world, for unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. For us, this is as bad as it gets. Amen? For them, it only gets worse. For us, it only gets better. If you don't know God, a funeral is a tragic thing. If you're a believer, a funeral, we grieve. We're going to miss people. Our heart breaks. We miss the fellowship. But we do not grieve. We grieve, but not as those without hope. Because we know that it's a celebration. And so he told them, in the way that you mourn, don't mourn like the world does. Don't be cutting yourselves and just beyond, you know, being comforted. I've, I've done many funerals as a pastor, and I can tell you that it's night and day between doing a funeral for a believer and doing a funeral for an unbeliever. You do a funeral for a believer, it's a joyous event. Again, we miss them and we, and we shed tears, of course. And that's okay. It's okay to weep. But we don't weep uncontrollably. We weep and we have hope. So he said, don't mourn like the world. And he said not to eat like the world. He gave them a specific diet, one, to protect them from the diseases that would come, and also to keep them away from the world. Because they had a different diet, and if you had a different diet than the world, it would keep you separated from the world. And then lastly, he told them to be different in the way they gave. The world we live in today gives only when they can get back. God's plan for us is to give when we, can, when we expect nothing back. Now last week we talked about that, giving when it doesn't make sense in chapter 15. He said, you know what, every seven years all your debts are going to be released. We all like that program, amen? I'd be signing up for that, I like that. No more mortgage, no more, no more credit card debts, no more debt period, right? Start over. And it sounds really good if you're on the guy who owes money side, but if you're the one loaning money out, it's not real good. And so you're saying to these people that would be loaning money, don't, be, don't hold on to your money because the seventh year is coming. You give even when you know you will probably never get it back. That's a great word for us as Christians today. Amen? Everything we have belongs to God anyway. Amen? It's all God's stuff. And so shouldn't we just hold it lightly and be willing to let it go that it might be used for God's glory? He told them to give generously when they could never be repaid, to, again, be bound by love, not by duty. Don't give because you feel like you have to. Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't even pass an offering plate. You guys know that. We have a box, and if you want to give, you give. And the reason for that is I don't want anybody to ever give out of contrition. 
I don't want anybody to give because some man manipulated them. I want your giving to be an act of worship, out of love for God, done freely. The word for giving, a cheerful giver, as we said last couple weeks, is hilarion. It means to give with hilarity. Be hilarious about your giving. And if you can't, just keep it. It's okay. Because God's going to provide for us. He always has. Where God guides, God provides. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Amen? And if he has your heart, you'll give him everything. My time's yours, Lord. My money's yours, Lord. My talents are yours. It all belongs to you. So that brings us to chapter 16. And the message, the title of the message tonight, for those of you who take notes, is to remember all that God has done for you. Remember all that God has done for you. You know, one of the potential traps for the children of Israel as they entered into the land of promise was to allow all the physical blessings that they had and all the prosperity to give them a false sense of self-sufficiency. To start to think, you know, when we were in the wilderness, we needed manna or we would have died. So every day we had to get up and go outside and, and hope and pray that God dropped some manna out of the sky. And every day they began their day going out to gather up manna. Every day they remember what led them, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. So every day when they came out in the morning, they looked up to see if the pillar or the cloud had moved. If the cloud moved, they needed to move. So they began their day gathering up manna and looking up to see if the cloud had moved so they could stay in the center of God's will. You know what can happen though? When the cloud's not there anymore and you don't need the manna anymore and now you're becoming self-sufficient and you're in a land flowing with milk and honey, all of a sudden now you can stop looking up. All of a sudden now you can stop arising early to go out and gather the food. You can say, hey, I've got food in my barn. I've got plenty of animals and you know, who needs God now? And though it doesn't come out necessarily verbally, it can happen in our actions. And so his heart was, look, Israel, you're going to go into this land flowing with milk and honey. There's going to be a temptation for you to start to trust in yourselves. And you know what? You can lose your desperation for God when you have a lot of stuff. You know what? You don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you have. Amen? And you know what? I've been to India, and I've seen some of the most happy, joyous people in my life. A family of five people living in a 12 by 12 room on a concrete slab, not knowing what's for breakfast tomorrow. But you know what's awesome is they just love God. And they're not distracted by 97 channels on cable, right? And Xbox and every other video game and all the other stuff. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to be comfortable. But may we not be so comfortable that we lose our desperation for God. Amen? And so this is his heart as he's writing to them. is look, don't forget where you've come from. You're going to go in and you're going to be blessed. And there's going to be a temptation to start to rest on your laurels and say, well, I'm good now. I used to pray a lot when I was desperate, but now I'm in good shape and I don't have to be. And we, at the same time, need to st- stop, not fall into the trap of stopping recognizing the fact that God is the source of all of our blessings. We can start to put our faith in the very things He's blessed us with. We can start trusting in our abilities, our careers, our finances, our possessions, things God gave us to use for His glory, and forget about the one who gave us the very gifts. So God knew their heart, He knows our hearts. And so what did he do to keep them from forgetting? He gave them feasts to celebrate. I love God so much, and I love just his wisdom. He gave them a celebration to remember him. He said, I want you to remember me, and not only do I want you to remember me, but I want you to enjoy it when you get there. I want it to be a blast when you come to remember me. You know what? That's the way church ought to be, amen? You know, it's so sad. I see people, oh man, I've got to go to church. I blew it. I didn't go last week. Grandma's going to be on me. I better go. Right? And I know people that go to church out of contrition, out of, man, I'm going to be in trouble. I've got to get a brownie point with God. I've really blown it. I need, you know, I need to go. You know what? May we come with great expectation of watching God move. May we come with a heart and a desire to minister to one another. May it be a get to and never a have to. Amen? And that was his heart for Israel. He said, look, here's what I want to do so you guys will keep your eyes on me, so you won't forget about me. Along with the daily sacrifices, he set up seven different feasts, and three of which were mandatory, the three we're going to see tonight. And each of these feasts was a constant reminder so they would stay desperate for God, and they would remember all that the Lord had done for them, so they wouldn't forget. May we never forget all that the Lord has done for us. So tonight we're going to look at the three feasts, and this is the three feasts we're going to look at. First of all, we're going to look at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about 
not just the feast itself, but what it points to. The feast, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, points to the fact that God has delivered us out of bondage. Then we will look at the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost. Penta being the word for 50. So 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, the Feast of First Fruits, 50 days later is Pentecost. And we'll see then that they did that in remembrance of God giving them the law. And then lastly, we'll see the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. This was the biggest feast of all. This is the feast where they all gathered together and had a huge party to celebrate. So let's begin looking at all, remembering all that God has done for Israel, all that God has done for you, all that God has done for each one of us, beginning by looking at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, their deliverance, their, a celebration of their deliverance out of bondage. Verse 1, observe the month of Abib. Now the month of Abib, it's also called Nisan, all right, it's the same thing. And he said, so on the 14th day of the first month on a lunar calendar was the month of Abib, and that's when this feast took place, when Passover began. Now, this is significant. This, this feast took place in March or April. They're in a lunar calendar, right? It's not as many months as ours. It's a different time. They began their year at a different time. It had to do with, with the moon itself. And so because of that, it was literally March or April. And they celebrated Passover during that time. Now, we do not know for sure when, what day of the month exactly Jesus was crucified. But we do know this. We know that it was in that month, March, April time period, because we know that he was crucified when? At Passover. And now we're going to see that Passover not only had a meaning for them as they looked back, but it has a prophetic truth for us, for for them looking forward. For them in those days, that had a prophetic truth that was yet to come, as each of the seven feasts did. I want to encourage you, if you ever really want to look at the feast, grab the tape from Leviticus 23. It has all seven feasts. The first four feasts are, were all fulfilled when Christ came the first time, and the last three feasts will all be fulfilled when Christ comes back. And it's really awesome to look at each of the feasts and see how prophetic they were when they began and how four of them have been fulfilled. And because of that, we can be assured that the last three will also. Amen? Just as they were 100% accurate in the first four, it's going to be 100% accurate in the last three. So, once a year, they came together during the month of Abib, and it said, And keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. So what was Passover? Passover was Independence Day. For them physically, it was the day of 400 years of bondage stopped. Because what had happened, they were in bondage. Now, why were they in bondage? Because of their own disobedience. They disobeyed God, and because of that, God allowed them to be put into bondage where they were for 400 years. And while they were in bondage, the nation of Israel, you know, they were in rebellion. They began to cry out to God. But God not only delivers them out of slavery through the Passover, but He also demonstrated His great power over the gods and armies of Egypt. So what happened at Passover, as a quick reminder? God called a man by the name of Moses. Now, Moses is a type or a picture of of Jesus Christ. Again, commissioned by God to go deliver the people out of bondage. Exactly what Jesus did for us. Independence Day, that's what Passover was. And we're going to see that it points to an even greater Independence Day. So the Pharaoh was reluctant to let the people go, so Moses, inspired by God came and delivered the ten plagues upon Egypt. And with each of the plagues, Pharaoh refused to let them go. And the tenth and final plague was the death of the firstborn. And so what happened with this final plague was the angel of death came and killed the firstborn of every family. Now, the only way you could be delivered and spared from that death was, let's read verse 2, Therefore you shall sacrifice... The Passover to the Lord your God from the flock of the herd in the place where the Lord God chooses to put His name. So they made a sacrifice to remember what happened on Passover. Well, on Passover, what they did is they brought in a lamb. It had to be a firstborn, spotless lamb. No defect. As we're going to see, they, had to bring, they brought it in on the 10th of the month, and they watched it for four days to make sure it was perfect, that it didn't get sick, that it didn't have any blemishes, that it was perfect. And then on the 14th day of the month, they would take that animal and they would slice its throat. They put its blood into a basin. 
They took that basin and they put the basin at the foot of the doorpost. Then they took a hyssop branch and they rubbed the, they took the blood that was at the feet and put it on both doorposts and at the head of the door. Now when they were told to do this, this probably made, I'm sure it made no sense. Here's what you need to do to keep from dying. Put blood on your door. What are you talking about, right? Can you imagine? I want you to put blood on your door. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to take some blood and I want you to put it. But you and I today looking back, we know very clearly what that's a picture of. It's a picture of the cross. You know, the blood on, uh, from the crown of thorns upon his head. The blood from his hands and the blood from his feet. And remember when Jesus thirsted, they tried to give him, uh, they put a sponge on a what branch? Hyssop branch. The same thing that was used to spread the blood. Now those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost escaped death. Now remember, we've talked about this before, it wasn't enough just to kill the lamb. It wasn't enough just to, you know, to believe that the lamb existed. Okay? It's not enough just to believe that there is a lamb. It's not enough just to know there's a lamb out there somewhere. As long as I believe that there's a lamb, I'm okay. No, that wouldn't work. Well, what if I believe that the, okay, this is a lamb. What if I slit the throat of the lamb? What if I have the blood of the lamb? That's still not good enough. The blood must be applied. The blood must be applied. It's not good enough that the lamb's been slain. The blood must be applied to the doorpost or there would be death. It's not good enough that Jesus Christ died. You must apply his death to your own life. You must receive him as Lord and Savior. You must repent of your own sin. You, may, you must ask him to come in. Just believing that there is a God is not good enough. Just believing that he died is not good enough. Even believing that he rose from the dead is not good enough if you have not repented of your sin and accepted him as Savior. So the blood had to be applied. And when it was applied, the angel of death passed over, and those who did not apply the blood were killed. Now, that brought a swift end to Pharaoh's desire to keep the children of Israel. Now he saw them as more of a curse than a blessing. He said, get them out of here. Take them out of here. So what were they doing at Passover? They were remembering their deliverance out of bondage. And we know again that this is all a picture of Christ. Because the Lamb is a picture of Jesus. Historically, they were celebrating their deliverance from bondage. It was a reminder of God's deliverance. So every year when they did this, what were they remembering? When they took the time and they stopped and they brought the lamb into their house and they watched it for four days, the kids no doubt, Mommy and Daddy, why is the lamb in the house? Why do we, why are we have this lamb here? What are we doing to the lamb? Well, we're going to sacrifice the lamb. Well, how come? Well, because... Our ancestors were in bondage in Egypt, and this is what happened. And what an opportunity to tell the story. So every time they had Passover, it was remembering what the Lord God had done for them. Just like when we have Christmas, and we have Easter, it's not about bunnies and eggs, amen? You know, Easter, it's when Jesus rose from the dead. It's Resurrection Sunday, amen? And it's not about a big fat guy with a beard at Christmas. It's Jesus' birthday, and you know, the, the enemy would love for us to talk about something else other than the birth of Christ. The enemy would love for us to talk about anything other than the resurrection. But when we have those times, it's to remember what God has done for us, to celebrate it, and also to pass it down to that next generation. Amen? That's what's happening here. They're having Passover they're to remind their, own, their whole family. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. When Jesus began his public ministry, he came walking up. There was a man by the name of John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Understand, they've been sacrificing lambs for hundreds of years, not fully grasping what exactly what it meant. And when John said it, there were no doubt people in the hearing that went, Oh. And many of them it wasn't until the cross. And others it wasn't until he rose from the dead. And others it wasn't until the testimony went out. But all of it was pointing to Jesus Christ. And so Passover was to remember what Christ had done for them. Now it says in that verse, where do you do this? Where do you make this sacrifice? In the place where the Lord chooses to put His name. So where was the only place they could make the Passover sacrifice? It had to be in the tabernacle, later the temple, which is, was where? In Jerusalem. Now, why in the tabernacle? Well, because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And remember, the blood on the Day of Atonement had to be sprinkled where? On the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because that was, the mercy seat was covering the law. 
The law reveals our sin, but God's mercy is upon it. Amen? And by His, by His blood being sprinkled, we've been forgiven. But it was in the tabernacle. Now, why is that significant? Because where did Jesus die on the cross? In Jerusalem. It had to be there. And it had to be on the altar. Because the altar was a picture of the bronze altar. Bronze being judgment. Again, we went through Exodus and Leviticus. You saw this repeatedly. Bronze, judgment, the altar, the cross. Four points on the altar. They tied the animal down. Put blood on the four horns. Again, the four points of the cross. All of it pointing clearly to Jesus. So every time they observed Passover, it was a remembrance of what God had done for them. That they might remind the next generation that they might not get their eyes off of the Lord. Salvation requires bloodshed. Without the shedding of blood, there must be forgiveness of sin. There can be no forgiveness of sin. Now it's interesting. They not only shed its blood, but then they had to eat the lamb. They had to eat the lamb. So it wasn't enough just to apply its blood, but then they had to take the lamb into themselves. Now Jesus would later say, unless you, have drink, unless you drink my blood and eat of my flesh, you can have no part of me. Right? So this is saying again, it's not enough just to believe or even to apply, but now we must assimilate him into our bodies. He must become part of us. Amen? And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and we're new creations in Christ. And so, again, it's, I believe you died for me, Lord. I receive you into my life, and I accept what you've done. The blood on the door delivered them from the angel of death, and Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross has delivered us from sin. Passover for them was Independence Day, and the cross of Christ for us was Independence Day. Amen? They were delivered physically. We were delivered spiritually. Praise God for His shed blood on the cross. And praise God that He loved us enough that He'd rather die than live without us. Praise God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't die for the worthy because none of us are worthy. Amen? He's worthy, and that's why He died, that we might have eternal life. So historically, it pointed back to deliverance. It was for them to constantly remember that God delivered them out of bondage. If it wasn't for for God, if it wasn't for God sending Moses, they'd have still been in bondage. And if it wasn't for the Father sending the Son, you and I would still be in our sin. Amen? And so as we look back to the cross, may we remember what we've been delivered from. And may we never take it for granted. And while we don't have Passover, we do have the Lord's Supper. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take communion, we're remembering the cross. We're looking back to the cross. We're looking within our own hearts, examining our own walk before God. And we're looking forward to the day when we will have communion or Lord's Supper with him in heaven. Praise God for that. And so he gave them the feast that they would not forget about him that they would not lose sight of their deliverance. And we take communion today, or Lord's Supper today, that we might not lose sight of the cross. Now, at the end of part of this Passover feast, it led right into the feast of unleavened bread. Look at verse 3. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be among you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread historically was a reminder to them of them, being, of them leaving Egypt with great haste. There was no time for the bread to rise. They took unleavened bread. And they were to eat no leaven for a week to remind themselves of that. Now the first thing they did is they went through their whole house and swept out every bit of leaven or yeast. And they went, looked in the cracks, they looked every part of their house to remove it because their house was defiled by leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You put a little leaven in and it, it taints all of everything it touches. And so they were to go in and cleanse their, their, their houses completely before the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. Now, what's that a picture of for you and I? Leaven is a picture of sin. So for you and I, we need to look at every crevice of our house. And we need to look for areas where that, that are defiled in our home. Stuff we have in our house that shouldn't be there. You know, things you're watching on TV, videos you've got in your house, things you're entertained by, music you've got, things that you have in your home that would take your eyes off of God, get rid of them. And you know what? It's, here's the key, you guys. We can even, in pursuing that which is good, give up that which is best. 
You can even have things in your house that aren't bad necessarily, but if you're spending all your time doing them and are taking your eyes off of God, then you need to get rid of them. And so he's saying, remove all the leaven. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was for them to remember their deliverance, how they had to leave in great haste. But prophetically, the unleavened bread points to Jesus. Jesus took the bread, and what did he say? This is my body, which is broken for you. And so the bread was unleavened because Jesus was without sin. So the bread was unleavened because Jesus is sinless. Now, the, today when they have a Passover meal, I've shared this with you guys before, but if you don't want to take the time to do it, between the second and third cup of wine, they open up a bag. And in that bag, there's three pieces of unleavened bread, or matzah. Have you ever seen matzah before? It's striped and it's pierced. We've talked about this, right? The Bible says, by his stripes we are healed, and he was pierced in the side. And so they have this bread that is striped and pierced and unleavened. Man, who's that a picture of? Okay? And they have three pieces of this bread, all the same subs- substance, and they remove the centerpiece out. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Trinity, remove the second part, Jesus, and they what? They break it in half. A picture of Jesus being broken for us. Then they take that piece and they wrap it up and they hide it. And then children go try to find it. When they find it, they celebrate. Man, is that Jesus or what? How do you, right? Here you take the second piece out, you break it in half, you wrap it in linen. What do they wrap Jesus in? In linen, and they put him where, and then guess what? When they, he, they went to the tomb, he wasn't there, everybody celebrates. And the Jews celebrate that today, and it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus on every bit of it, amen? And so even back then, Passover, all pointing to Christ, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that our Savior was with and is without sin. And it's interesting that they do it between the second and third cup because Jesus rose on the third day. Nothing happens by chance. God is... God is so awesome. And so it's interesting that the the name of that portion of the Seder, it's the only Greek word in the Seder. It's called the afikomen. You know what it means? I came. I came. It's time for the I came. Let's take the bread, let's break it, let's wrap it. Unbelievable. Striped, pierced. It's Jesus all over the place. Amen? what What an awesome picture of the cross so passover is a picture of the cross the unleavened bread the feast of unleavened bread is a picture of again you know cleansing ourselves of our sin but at the same time that only can come through the cross of christ it's a picture of the sinlessness of our savior you gotta love the bible it blows me away people say oh the old testament oh yeah the old you gotta be kidding you haven't read it amen because if you spend time in the old testament you're gonna see jesus on every single page It all points to him. Now look what it says there at the end of verse 4, that they were not, they were the meat. What does it say there? Nothing was to remain overnight. When Jesus was crucified. You know, a lot of times people hung on a cross for days. Did you know that? Jesus didn't. And they wanted him to hurry up and die because... Passover is about to start. Does that blow your mind? we got to hurry up and have Jesus die so we can start having Passover. Hello? Right? You missed it. Here's the lamb right here. You can stop sacrificing those lambs. The lamb is hanging on the cross. Yet he died, and he did not hang on the cross overnight. And it says there, it shall not remain overnight until morning. Verse 5 through 7. You may not, you may not sacrifice the Passover with any of your gates which your Lord your God gives you. But the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast it and eat it in the place the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Now, again, they were not allowed to just have this sacrifice at their house. They had to do what? Travel to Jerusalem. They had to bring the lamb and take it to Jerusalem or bring money to buy a lamb and, take it and go to Jerusalem. What did this make them do? It made them stop whatever they were doing, get their eyes focused back on God again and go and spend time with the Lord. And you know what? We need to do that too. Amen? 
That's why, forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. I'm preaching to the choir, you're here on Wednesday, okay? But we need to be more and more together, not less and less, as we get close to Christ's return, amen? I mean, what else we got to do? I'm not, you know, I don't get it. I can't go to church twice a week, that's like radical. Do you, how, how many days a week you watch television? Amen? How many hours do you spend doing other stuff that is chaff? I do it too, I watch sports, I'm with you, okay? But if I'm watching more football games than I am spending time with the Lord, something's wrong. I got the wrong God. Amen? And he's telling them, look, you drop everything and you don't do it. Because can you imagine if they could do it at home? How would that have been? Just do it at home. Okay, well, where's the lamp? Drag it in here. Eh, right? Done. Let's get back to work. Right? Let's play some ping pong. Right? I mean, you know what happens? As we do that, if we just give God a little bit of our time. And can I encourage you? If you're going to come to church, show up on time an idea. We show up on time for movies, right? Get there early to get popcorn and make sure you're not sitting in the front row, right? Now, I'm not talking about if you got to work or whatever. God, you get here whenever you can, and God bless you. But I'm just saying, you know, sometimes we just we kind of lollipop. That's not the way it ought to be with the Lord. He's first. Aren't you glad he wasn't late for the cross? Amen? Aren't you glad he's right on time with your trials and problems? I'll get you in a week. Aren't you glad? That his timing is always perfect? Man, let's make him the priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. And he says there, not to sacrifice it within your gates. You must take it to the place of sacrifice. Again, to the altar, to the place of the cross. You know when Jesus was led out carrying the cross after being scourged and beaten? Those of you go to, we're going back to Israel in March of next year. I want to encourage you to go. We went last year in March. We're going to go every other year, Lord willing. March of 2006. The Bible in 3D, it will change your life. Amen? Those who've been, it will change your life. It's radical. We're going to sit on 50 to 60 spots where the actual events took place and teach the Word of God. It's great sitting on Mount Carmel teaching about Elijah calling down fire down from the sky. It's great to sit in the Sea of Galilee and talk about Jesus walking on water. And it's great to sit at the tomb and teach on the resurrection and then go into the tomb and see that he's not there. Amen? Phenomenal life-changing. But you know what? What you'll see when you're there is that if you go from Jerusalem to the cross, because the cross was at Golgotha, Calvary, outside of the city, that they had to cross over the brook Kidron. And what's interesting about that is the brook was running with the blood of the lambs, the sacrifices of the lambs. Their blood was running through the, through the brook, and Jesus walked right over the top of that creek, right over the top of that brook, headed to the cross. Awesome picture. And it can't happen at home. It can't happen over here. It had to happen where he, would, where he would, again, suffer and die. All of this so clearly pointing to Jesus. We don't want to miss out on, the, on just the awesome prophecy throughout the entire Old Testament. Blood shed by many lambs in Egypt delivered a nation, but the blood of one lamb slain on the cross will deliver all who will come to him. Amen? How many lambs had to be slain on Passover? thousands upon thousands how many had to be slain for you and me one how many were worthy to be slain one jesus christ alone there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved praise god so the blood of many jewish sacrifices could cover or push their sin toward the coming messiah and they had to do it every single year you know why we don't make sacrifices anymore what would jesus what was jesus last word on the cross it is finished. Tetelestai, tetelestai, right? It is finished. Praise God. We're not dragging lambs in here anymore. Praise the Lord for that. It's finished. It's done. It doesn't have to be repeated. But back then, it was a constant reminder for you and I, Christmas, Easter, Lord's Supper, constant reminders of what Christ has done for us. You know what's interesting? They were called to come. And throughout the New Testament, you see that Jesus went to Jerusalem to observe the feast. Again, I also want to say this. It wasn't the life of the Lamb that saved Israel from bondage, but the death of the Lamb. You know, people today will say, and I don't want you to, don't, don't take this wrong. We are to follow Christ's example, but following Christ's example will not save us. Amen? Why? Because we can't follow it completely. We fall short. So it's not the life of the Lamb that saves us, it's the death of the Lamb. And then the fact that he rose from the dead, proving himself to be God. Jesus must first be our Savior before we can follow in his footsteps. 
Praise the Lord. Verse 7 again says, You shall roast it and eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. So salvation does produce a transformed life. Once they take it within themselves, they ate the Passover feast as families. What do we do now? Instead of eating the Passover feast as a family, we feed on the Word of God. We come together and we don't feed on lamb, we feed on the Word. They fed on what represented the Lord and Jesus Christ is called the Word. And we feed on His Word. And this is what we do when we come together. Verse 8. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. And it's not by chance it says do no work because salvation is not by works but by grace. Amen? Now, should we as Christians, should there be fruit in our lives? Should there be good works produced? Absolutely. Remember, it's not faith plus works or faith or works. It's faith that works. Amen? Our faith should produce good works, but our good works cannot save us. So he says, do no work. And may we come together and feast on Christ through His Word and rest in Him. Now the next feast, and I want to say this again, that like Israel, they looked back at Passover, remembering their deliverance. We look back to the cross to remember, remember that we've been delivered out of sin. And again, we don't observe Passover, we observe the Lord's Supper. May it be a time that we remember the cross of Christ. Now the next one, and remembering all that God has done for you, not only has He delivered you from sin, but take a look here at the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Now this was again a feast associated with the joy of the beginning of the harvest. The harvest went for a great length of time, as we're going to see with the next feast that they, took, that they had. They, feast, they harvested different things at different times. And this was the first part of the harvest. And during this time, it was 50 days, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which represented the resurrection of Christ, the Sunday after Passover, the first day of the week after Passover. It's not mentioned in this text, but it is in Leviticus 23. And so historically, why did they celebrate Pentecost? We don't have a whole lot of detail here in this text. He's reminding them to celebrate it, but they celebrated it to remember the giving of the law. Because when was the law given? 50 days after they were delivered out of bondage. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the law is given. Now this is significant because historically it points to their giving of the law. But what does it point to prophetically? What happened on Pentecost in the New Testament? The giving of the Holy Spirit. Now to see that the Bible fits perfectly together again. Look at verse 9. It says, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count seven weeks from the time you began to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. So they came together and they gave unto the Lord. And they gave to Him in remembrance of the law being given and His blessings of Pentecost, at Pentecost, right? The blessing of giving the law. Now, in the Old Testament, looking back, what happened when the law was given? I, I talked about it a moment ago. They went up, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, he comes down. What does he find the people doing? Out of control. They're having a drunken orgy, right? The first two commandments. Now, can you imagine? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? Thou shalt serve no graven image. And they go, dude, don't even talk to us anymore. The whole ground shook. Everything went dark, and they were scared spitless. And they said, Moses, you talk to him, because if he talks to us again, we're all going to die. Now, what do they do as soon as he goes up on Sinai? The first two commandments are no other god before me, no graven image adultery's in there, right? And what do they do? Have a drunken party. And they make a golden calf. Aaron makes a golden calf. Aaron, the high priest, the assistant pastor, makes a golden calf. Pastor Moe's up on the mountain and the assistant pastor's making a gold. If I go on vacation... No, I want you to go. Okay. So he goes up Sinai. He comes down and sees what's happening, and at the giving of the law, how many people died that day? 3,000 people died that day. Now, in the Bible, if it's in there, it's in there for a reason, amen? So at the giving of the law, the first Pentecost, if you will, right? 50 days after Passover, Feast of First Fruits, they give the law out, and 50 people, 3,000 souls die that day. Thousands of years later, a couple thousand years later, the Lord... Sends it to heaven, he says, go and wait. And they wait in the upper room, and on Pentecost, 50 days later, 
The same day the law had been given, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, right? And they began to speak with great boldness and unknown tongues. And what happens? 3,000 souls were added that day. So the law was given and 3,000 souls died and the Spirit was given and 3,000 people came to know Christ. You think that's by chance in the Bible? So when the law is given, the law brings forth death and the realization that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And the Spirit is given to bring power and life. Amen? And I love that clear picture in the Word. And so they're celebrating Pentecost to remember the law being given, to remember that God had given direction for their lives. God had a plan for them, and they were to remember that. And you and I need to remember that God has a plan for us. Amen? God's not an unconcerned God up here in the cosmos, not worried about you. Does He care about you? He's numbered your hair on, the hairs on your head. Doesn't mean He knows how many there are. He's numbered them. You're combing your hair, there goes 1,400, you know, what, falling out of your head. He knows. He cares that much about you. You are His treasured possessions. It's interesting that God's plan for church growth, there were no gimmicks. There was no entertain. They weren't being entertained. They weren't preaching to felt needs. Amen. Oh, we need to tell them what they want to hear, so they'll come back next week. Well, we need to entertain them. We need Bozo the Clown here. Let's get some gimmicks. Let's have some kind of you know. Let's get some hype going, so people will come back. Is that what happened? They had 120 people in the church, and it went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. Is that church growth or what? Amen. And Bozo the Clown wasn't there. No flying Melinda's. They didn't have any of that stuff going on. No gimmicks. No pack a pew Tuesday. They weren't preaching to felt needs. They didn't say, oh, you guys, you know, come to God and he'll give you all kinds of money. Is that what happened? The wonderful works of God is what they heard. And they repented. And they were born again. And that's the ultimate church growth movement. A.W. Tozer said this, If the Holy Spirit was removed from the first century church, 95% of what they did would change and everyone would notice. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, 95% of what the church did wouldn't change and almost no one would notice. That's an indictment on the church, but I say amen to it. So much of what we're doing in the church today is activity. We're trying to keep busy. We've got to fill up the bulletin. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. And there's no Holy Spirit. There's no prayer behind it. It's not the power of God in it. And if you know what? If we win them with stuff, we're going to win them to stuff. But we win them with the Word, and we win them to the Lord, then that's what we won, we won them to. Amen? Win them with the Word. Win them to the Word. Win them to the Lord. Early church didn't have any buildings, no budgets, no academic degrees, no political influence. The things that the church today says they have to have to be successful. Well, you know, we'd really be doing really well if we had a a real nice building. Praise God that's not the truth. Amen? We're meeting in a gymnasium, sitting on metal chairs, and praise God for this place. Amen? Because it's not about a building, and it's not about... And by the way, I don't have a PhD in... a THD. I don't have a doctorate in theology. I don't know if you guys know this. I didn't go to Bible college. Now, you can leave now. It's all right. Go ahead. (laughs) Blast me, heretic. Now, I'm not against Bible college. I'm all for Bible college. But you know what? I believe that you can fall in love with the Lord and have an intimate personal relationship with Him without going to Bible college. Now, I'm all for it. I encourage you. I tell all my kids, I want you to go to Bible college. I think it's a good thing. But you know what? Most denominations would say I'm not called because I didn't go to Bible college. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Amen? And what I want is I want someone who's called. I want someone who's got the power of God in their life. Peter, James, and John, they were untrained men, but they had been with Jesus. Amen? So these are guys, man. These guys are fishermen and tax collectors, and these guys were a mess. But look, Jesus got a hold of their life, and God used them in a mighty and a powerful way. Again, they didn't have all the stuff that the world needs, but they had the power of the Holy Spirit, and they saw multitudes saved. Lord Jesus, do that in this church. Amen? May we have the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms Santa Cruz into Holy Cross, the name that it means. Amen? It's namesake. People laugh, but God can do it. Amen? Amen. He can turn this place right side up. People could call it the Bible Belt 10 years from now, right? God can do it. We laugh, but it's true. God can do it. Read the rest of the, uh, verse 11. It says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, the widow who, widows who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You know what? He said, when you do it, I want you to rejoice. 
when you go to Pentecost and you remember what I've done for you, I want this to be a celebration. I don't want church to be a... No- Again, we come to hear the word and we come to be fed and we come to grow and certainly we have some reverence when we come to church. But church is not a black robe with a wheelbarrow full of rules and heaven at the end. Amen? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Woe is me. going to go to heaven though. Right? Look like I've been sucking on a lemon. Right? That's not Christianity. It's joy. Amen? I can't wait to see you guys on Wednesdays and Sundays and Friday mornings at the men's study and Tuesday, every chance I get to see. I love it because we're family and we have Jesus in common. He says, when you go, take your family with you and make it a huge celebration. Let's bring our families with us to church. Let's bring our families with us to worship. And again, he said, obey the law of God and do it with great joy. And he says there at the end of that verse, remember you have a, that you were a slave in Egypt. And be careful to obey the statutes or the law of God. Lastly, verses 13 through 17. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from the threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast. And your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a Sabbath feast to the Lord your God in the place where the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands, so that you shall surely rejoice. When you go into the land of promise, he says, I want you to have this feast of tabernacles. Now, what was the feast of tabernacles, also known as the feast of booths or the feast of ingathering? What was that all about? It was about the harvest of the fruits, the grapes and the figs and the olives. The Jews simply called it the holiday. It was the biggest holiday on their calendar. It was the thing they looked forward to the most. It was the greatest of all celebrations. It was a festival of great joy. And they were to bring everybody from within their household and have this huge feast of celebration at the end of this harvest season. Their offerings during this time were the most elaborate of the entire year. They were looking back at their deliverance. They were celebrating their blessing. Now, if you look in Leviticus 23, let me just tell you the sacrifices they made. They made a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice offering, a drink offering, a Sabbath offering. They gave gifts, vows, and free will offerings on top of all of that. And they brought it all, and it was the greatest time of rejoicing as they gave back to the Lord, and they remembered all that God had done for them. It was a time of feasting, resting, and rejoicing before the Lord. They were praising God for the bountiful harvest. But what were they looking back at? They were looking back to their time in the wilderness when God provided for them. That's why it's also called the Feast of Booths. Because you know what they did during that week? They would would go out and they literally would take trees and branches and things and they would make these little booths and they would live in them for a week. And they would camp around the tabernacle and around the temple. And they would camp outside. And what was this to do? Again, can you imagine what the children would say? You're out there making these little booths. And you're making these little tents to live in. And the children would say, Mommy, Daddy, why are we doing this? There's a hotel, you know. I mean, there's a holiday inn down the street. Why are we out here? Why are we staying? And they would say, because we're remembering God's provision and what happened and how He provided for those when, when our ancestors were in the wilderness. How God provided for them. So they were to look back and remember God's great deliverance. How He rained manna from the sky. How He blessed them. And during this feast, again, they lived in these booths. A reminder of how their ancestors lived in these temporary dwellings. It was an opportunity, again, to share with their kids about God's great provision for them. You know what? Sometimes we go through difficulty. It's God's giving us an opportunity to show our kids God's great provision. You know, I remember being a little kid, and I'm a PK, I'm a preacher's kid, and I grew up in a Christian home, as most of you know, and I remember my dad was working for a denominational church that treated him like a hireling, paid him next to nothing. And there are churches today that are still like that. Now, I want to say this. You don't pay, if, you, if you want to be rich, don't be a pastor. Amen? Physically rich. I'm the richest man on the planet, spiritually. That's how I feel about it. I can't believe I get to do what I get to do. But every pastor we have on staff took a huge pay cut to be a pastor. And it's a joy and a get-to to do it. Now, you don't go into ministry. Now, there are people today that say, oh, that you should have a Rolls Royce. And that's, a, you know, no, 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 absolutely not. I believe that pastors should live at the level their people or below it. But I also believe this. I don't believe they should starve to death either. 
And I'm not ever going to pay our assistant pastors in such a way that they have to get a second job or they're worried about running out of food at the end of the month. That's just not right. The Bible says not to muzzle the ox, right? The Bible says those in ministry are worthy of double honor. So when I said this, I said, you know, we need to make sure that, and again, not getting rich, not going to ministry to get rich, but not starving either to prove that they're called. But I grew up in a, where a church where at the end of every month we ran out of food a lot of times. And you know what would happen? Is my mom would be weeping and, and, and we didn't have any food in the house and we'd go to the door and somebody put five bags of groceries on our doorstep. And we didn't know who did it, so who got all of the glory? God did. And so often we go through trials so that we can point our... See, look at God did, guys. Look what the Lord did. Or, you're, you know, there's no money left and you go out to the mailbox and there's that check that somebody owed you from six months ago and it comes right on God's timing, Amen. Not because of seed giving and any of that stuff either, but because God is faithful and we get to see God working. And what was happening here was they were being reminded of God's provision in the wilderness, of how God provided for them in the midst of their lack. So the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering, was the greatest of all celebrations. It was a time of great joy. It was a feast at the end of the harvest season. It was the greatest time of giving. They were looking back at their deliverance in the wilderness. They were celebrating their current blessing. It was a time of feasting, resting, and rejoicing before the Lord. Historically, it looked back to their wilderness wandering, and prophetically, it looked forward to the millennial kingdom. Again, if you look in Leviticus 23, it's the very last of the seven. It's after the rapture of the church. It's after the seven years. What happens? When is going to be the time that we celebrate greater than any other time? The millennial kingdom, when we're in God's presence, amen? When is the end of the harvest season, right? The end of the harvest season, right? People are getting saved, right? And when it's over, we're going to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. So all of it, a clear picture yet again of what we see in God's Word. Last two verses. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 17, Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So three times a year, every Jewish man was to come to the tabernacle or temple to celebrate these feasts before the Lord with the whole nation of Israel. They were to stop whatever they were doing and to make God the focus again. They were to stop whatever they were doing and Lord willing, bring their family with them to raise them up and to remind them of all that God had done for them. Each feast was a reminder of God's blessing and calling upon Israel. It was time to fellowship with God. It was time to remember what the Lord had done. So Passover, unleavened bread, they remember their deliverance out of bondage. At Pentecost, they remember the giving of the law, God's direction for holy living. And then at the Feast of Tabernacles, they remembered God's provision. And each was to come with the heart to give back to the Lord. If we realize what God's done for us, it gives us a heart to give, amen? Amen. If you realize what He's done for you, how can you not want to give back to Him of your time, of your gifts? As God's people today, we have many reasons to celebrate God's goodness. Passover to us points to the cross. We've been born again. My sins are forgiven. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And praise God, amen? And you know what? May that never grow common. May we not get used to that. Oh, yeah, I've been born again. Yeah, cross Christ. Yeah, I'm, yeah, right? Amen? May we not do that. May we always be just so blessed by what he has done for us. Pentecost points for us to the, to the baptism or the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Lord breathed the Holy Spirit within them in the Gospels. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them. He's in you at salvation, and He comes upon you subsequent to salvation, empowering you to do His work. And the tabernacles, we've been given generously to by the Lord. He supported us, and now we come before Him, giving Him all that we have. And it's a picture of that millennial kingdom. We will rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. Every person through history is going to have to deal with all three of these. Every person has got to make a decision about the cross. Amen? No decision is a decision when it comes to the cross. You either accept Him or you reject Him. You're either for Him or you're against Him. The Lord says, if you're, not, you know, if you're not His friend, you're His enemy. And He loves you and He desires to bring you to His side. We will have to respond to Him one way or another. We'll have to respond one way or another to Pentecost, to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws men, but men can reject Him. 
Salvation is offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. I cannot make you accept Christ. You cannot have a convincing enough argument to force somebody to be saved. It's a free will choice. Again, I don't have time to get into it, but I believe in the sovereignty of God. He's completely and totally in control of all things, and man has free will all at the same time. I believe that God knows the choice we're going to make, and He allows us to make it. He doesn't force His will on anybody, but He knows the, the, the decision we'll make. People struggle. Oh, it's got to be the sovereignty of God or the free will of man. No, it doesn't. It's the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexisting. It's our finite mind trying to understand infinite God that gives us a headache. But I have no problem with those two things coexisting, and the Bible clearly teaches both. Amen? Amen. 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 So praise the Lord for that. So if we take our eyes off of God, we'll pursue the things of this world. May we be those who remember all that God has done for us. May our minds be focused on Him. May we not be overwhelmed by our circumstances because our eyes are off of Him. Take your eyes off of God, and the things of this world are going to look really difficult. But when you remember who's on your side... There's nothing to sweat. Amen? God is for you. Who can be against you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for this powerful message and this powerful truth, Lord, that you are a loving and a gracious God. And Lord, may we be those who would not forget what you have done for us. May we remember moment by moment everything that you have done for us, Lord. May we live in the shadow of the cross, remembering the cross of Christ and the work of Calvary and your shed blood. I'm thanking you, Lord, for your forgiveness. May we remember, Lord, the Pentecost, and, and Lord, again, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and how your Holy Spirit lives inside of each of us. Lord, and I just thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, I pray also that we would remember your great promises and your provision, and that ultimate promise of heaven, that one day, Lord, we will be around your throne forevermore. We will see you face to face. just boggles the mind. I think we're going to see God face to face. We're going to touch the nail prints in our Savior's hand. Lord, we long for that day. Until then, Lord, may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.